Good morning. How you guys doing today? All right, some of you are doing okay. I'm Dwayne Arledge, Connections Pastor here at Fellowship of the Rockies. It's my privilege to be speaking while Pastor Charlie is out this weekend. Uh, he will be back with us next week. He's back in the office this week, and he'll begin, as you heard, the new series, Culture Shock, beginning next weekend. I want to tell you about one opportunity before we dive into the Scripture. Just this week, we had an opportunity brought to us from two elementary schools near us. We've partnered with Beulah Heights Elementary School and Highland Park Elementary School the last few years. Uh, Highland Park is more recently maybe just one year. But the opportunity this year looks different. It's a next-level opportunity. Karen Martinez, who's our coordinator for that, that ministry, the partnerships with schools, uh, came to me this week, and she had been to both schools to deliver uh, a large amount of school supplies that our church had purchased so they could have them for children who showed up this first week of school without adequate supplies, without the funds to purchase them. And so your giving has already helped each of these schools and children in these schools. But here's the new opportunity that God's opening the door for us to participate in. They need classroom helpers. They need library helpers. They need people to do one-on-one tutoring. And there's also a longer list on our website. Go to Ministries tab, click on Impact, and when you get to the Impact page, then there's a, a tab at, near the bottom that says School Partnerships, and it's, it's, a, it's a big one, so you can't miss it. Uh, if you click on School Partnerships, then there's an opportunity for you to choose which school you have an interest in for whatever reason, and the things you feel gifted you could do, uh, and then you can click Submit, and that'll go to Karen Martinez and our front office, and they'll handle that with you and then give you a referral to the school. We want to send dozens and dozens of quality people who will make a difference in children's lives and families' lives. We know the trajectory of those kids' lives are impacted by their success or their failures in classrooms, and we know that all of the needs presented in any one classroom will never be fully met by any one person called the teacher. We need partners. They need partners. And they're coming to us, giving us the opportunity to make a difference. Here's why it's significant for us. God's been placing on our heart as pastors that we do not ever need to be interested in becoming the best church in this community. Because when we focus on being the best church in the community, what we're focusing on is ourself and how good we are. But if we will focus on becoming the best church for this community, then the focus turns outward to all those people around us that we encounter every day or the people we've yet to encounter and their needs, and then we can help to meet those needs, and thereby we become the best church for this city because we're turned outward and not focused on ourselves. That was supposed to be an announcement. It sounded kind of like a sermon, didn't it? <laughs> but seriously, I, I want you to understand how huge an opportunity this is that God is opening for us. It has been a prayer of mine for several years, and I'm seeing God begin to answer that prayer. And so, would you please go to the Impact page on our website and submit, and submit that little uh, interest form and then get busy making a difference in someone's life. Thank you for that. Okay. 
We've been walking through the book of Proverbs for this is our eighth week, and today's topic out of the book of Proverbs and another passage in the book of Isaiah combined together, the topic for this weekend is your worship. Now, the book of Proverbs, most of it is written by King Solomon. Uh, He was King David's son. If you've studied the Old Testament, then you know that King David was a great musician, a great worshiper. Many of the Psalms were written by King David. And so King David is this great worshiper, and, and he, he wrote the book of Psalms, and then Proverbs written by his son who grew up in that home of a great worshiper. I've always kind of wondered, in the book of Psalms, I read through it, and it tells me how to be diligent, how to be faithful, how to have good relationships, how to not be a sluggard like Pastor Tom preached last week. That's our new word around here. We love that word. Hey, sluggard. Uh, not really. Uh, well, yes, really. We did that some this week. <laughs> it's just such a great word. Uh, how to not be a sluggard. Uh, how to avoid the pitfalls of temptation in your life. How to have integrity. All of those kinds of very practical things that we look for every day and we try to be better at. But I've always thought the book of Psalms had to do with worship and the book of Proverbs had really nothing to do with worship, just those kind of everyday things that I just named. And I thought, years ago, I thought, I wonder if Solomon really would just worship wasn't his thing. But the more I've read the Old Testament, I read about when King Solomon dedicated the new temple in Jerusalem, and the worship service he led the Israelites in there was astounding. It says, the glory of the Lord filled the temple during their worship like a cloud of smoke. And so, I, I, then I came to the conclusion that Solomon certainly had to know something about worship because of the experiences in his life and the way he led the nation of Israel. Uh, so, as I began reading several weeks ago about worship, reading through Proverbs, searching through Proverbs, I came to a new realization. I've discovered in Solomon's writings one long sentence, Proverbs chapter 2, the opening sentence of that is where we discover something of what Solomon would teach us about worship. If you'll turn to Proverbs chapter 2, and we'll read that together. Uh, I keep saying that. We're not going to do a read aloud exercise, okay? I'm going to read it. You're going to listen. That's the extent of our togetherness, okay? But I'll read that, and you follow along. (coughs) That may happen a little bit during this. If you... If you had heard me on Wednesday, you would would not have given me a prayer of being able to even talk this weekend. So what you're hearing is, I apologize for whatever cough may happen in this, but it's it's kind of a miraculous difference from from Wednesday and Thursday. Okay, Proverbs chapter 2, Solomon is writing to his son. My son, if you receive my words and treasure up my commandments with you, making your ear attentive to wisdom, inclining your heart to understanding. Yes, if you call out, cry out for insight and raise your voice for understanding. You're pleading for understanding is the picture. If you seek it like silver, if you seek it, in other words, like we seek income, finances, money, 
and search for it as for hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. Did you hear the word worship in that long sentence? It's audience participation time. Did you hear the word worship in that sentence? No. I didn't either for years. Therefore, I concluded that Proverbs had nothing to say about worship, but I was wrong. Remember now, I'm a word nerd, and I, I like words, and I like looking into words. So I want to look closely at a word, actually a phrase in this. It's in verse 5, toward the end of this long, run-on sentence. It's the phrase, fear of the Lord. You see, when we think of fear, most often we think of this distressing emotion that comes on us when something terrible is about to happen to us, or we believe something could happen, or we believe we're about to be found out for something we did. And we have this fear This emotion rises up in us that kind of overwhelms us and takes control. And we never think of that as a good thing, as a positive thing. It's never seen as a blessing to us at all. But typically in the Bible, when, when the Bible says the fear of the Lord, typically as it relates to God followers, it means something a bit different than that. God certainly has the ability to induce that kind of fear, especially... If you happened to be a God-hater or one who is against God, then I think that would be an appropriate emotion uh, when you think about God, the kind of fear that I just talked about. But for those who are God-followers, then the fear of the Lord typically means this, to have reverence for or to have a reverential awe, A-W-E, awe of God. And so, we revere the Lord, the fear of the Lord. And, we, and when we fear the Lord, we acknowledge and we embrace that He is absolutely holy. Now, here's the question for you. How can we fully embrace that the Lord is absolutely holy without ever engaging in worship? My answer is, we cannot. It's an impossibility. There's no true reverence for God that doesn't involve a lifestyle of worship. The book of Proverbs uses this phrase, fear of the Lord, 14 times. I'm not going to walk you through all of those, but I want to pick up just a few of those to give you an understanding as our foundation here today of fear of the Lord being worship and what it can bring in our lives. That, that passage talks about knowledge, understanding, insight, Let's see some of the other passages. Proverbs 1.7 says this, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. So every time I say the fear of the Lord in these passages, you insert worship. Worship of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. So beginning, I want to do a little bit more word nerd kind of things here. Beginning doesn't mean just a simple little entry point that doesn't make much difference. It's not that significant. Sometimes we think of is the beginning of knowledge. We think of that as just a, a minor thing. Think of it this way. The, the accurate concept is much more in, along the line of you teaching a young child the alphabet. 
26 characters. It may seem small, but that alphabet, those 26 characters, are the foundation upon which that child will build their whole vocabulary. Everything they ever read, everything they ever write is founded on 26 characters. And so it's the same here. If I, if I could read this with, with that kind of understanding, then I would say, worship of the Lord is the alphabet of knowledge. Worship of the, of the Lord gives you all the fundamental tools you need for all the knowledge you will ever need. It's the, the, that kind of a beginning point. And so, if you want deep, wise knowledge... Worship. Let's look at another one. Proverbs 14, two verses, 26 and 7. says this, In the fear of the Lord, in worship of the Lord, one has strong confidence, and his children will have a refuge. 27, The fear of the Lord, worship of the Lord, is a fountain of life. I love that imagery. That one may turn away from the snares of death. Verse 26 says this, do you want confidence? Worship the Lord. Verse 27 says, do you want your life to be full and satisfying? Worship the Lord. Proverbs 15, 16 says this, better is a little, in other words, monetarily, materially, better is a little with worship of the Lord than great treasure and trouble with it. In other words, the trouble that absence of worship will bring in your life. So this says, do you want to be satisfied in life? Worship the Lord instead of seeking the material things of this world. Proverbs 23, 17 says, let not your heart. Okay, that's kind of turned around. We wouldn't say it that way. Do not let your heart envy sinners. Don't be jealous of sinners. But continue in the worship of the Lord all the day. You want to be free of envy, anxiety, frustration? Worship the Lord all the day. Instead of you looking around you and around me at those who don't know Jesus and comparing ourselves with them. Here's what the, the wise writer of Proverbs is saying to us. Worship of the Lord is the foundational point, or the foundational element of everything you need to have in life. Now, let's keep that thought in mind and let's move to Isaiah chapter 6 for a picture of a worship experience between one man, the prophet Isaiah, God, and a bunch of angelic beings, okay? As far as I can determine, Isaiah was the only human being who showed up or who was present when all the others showed up for this worship service. So let's drop in on this. Let's read it and look through this. And then we're going to learn five things that, that this teaches us about worship. Isaiah 6, 1 through 8. In the year that King Uzziah died, so a stressful time, a difficult time, and Isaiah was seeking God, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. These are the angelic beings. 
Each had six wings. With two, covered his face. With two, he covered his feet. With two, he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. In other words, His glory is not just showing up here in this small venue with you, Isaiah. But the glory of the Lord fills the whole earth. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of Him who called. So this angelic being was not just kind of whispering to the others. But the volume and the intensity and the passion of this angelic being's worship was so powerful that it created a tremor. Isaiah could feel physical, literal shaking at the power of the worship of these angelic beings. And I said, this is Isaiah speaking, I said, woe is me, for I am lost. Some translations say I'm undone. Could I translate it a bit here? Oh, no. I'm dead. I think that's what Isaiah meant. Lost, undone. In other words, I've just seen this holy God, and we're about to find out why Isaiah thought he was dead. He was about to be killed. For I am a man of unclean lips. And beyond that, I dwell, I live in the midst of a people of unclean lips. In other words, everybody around me is just like me. We're all sinners. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar, the sacrificial altar where sacrifices were offered to atone for sin, to pay for sin. And he, he had the burning coal in his hand and his tongs. And he touched my mouth, remember, unclean lips. And he said, Behold, this has touched your lips. I don't think he needed to tell Isaiah that it had touched his lips. Okay? Here's the picture. He comes with this hot, burning, glowing coal from the altar, and he touches Isaiah's lips, sears his lips. It seems to me to be redundant to say, I've touched your lips with this. And your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Then I said, Here I am. Send me. I think this was an experience of true worship in Isaiah's life. Isaiah was a God follower. But this was the most profound experience of worship he had ever had in his life, at least to this point. Here's how I know it was worship. Isaiah was deeply changed in the process of those few sentences. Now let's look at how he was changed, why he was changed. We're going to take five things we want to learn from this about true worship. First thing we need to learn, I need to learn, you need to learn, is true worship gives me an accurate view of God. Each of these will, will say, true worship gives me an accurate view of something. And it builds and it makes great sense. It lines up with Scripture. So let's walk through it. An accurate view of God. The first four verses say these things. In the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne high and lifted up. 
That doesn't just mean that physically the throne was tall. That means that God was in his proper place, that he was exalted. He was above all else, everyone else, anywhere in the world, the galaxy, the whatever you want to name. He was exalted, and it is his deserved place. Verse 2, above him stood the seraphim, and it tells about their wings. And verse 3, and one called to another and said, okay, Isaiah got to drop in on a heavenly worship service. And they were in the middle. They were at the absolute crescendo point of their worship of the Most High God. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. And then the foundations of the threshold shook. And the house was filled with smoke, was filled with the essence, the power, the presence of a holy God. When I get an accurate view of God, here's what I'll understand about Him. He is absolutely holy. That's His supreme characteristic. He is not like me, nor you, nor all of us put together. If we take all the goodness in all, any of us and all of us and put that together, we still have not arrived at the holiness of God. He's absolutely right. He's absolutely pure. He possesses total integrity. He cannot lie. And Isaiah realized this in this private worship experience that God afforded him on that day. So here's my conclusion. When I have an accurate view of God, when I truly worship, I'll have an accurate view of God. And if I say I have worshiped and I don't have this view of God, then I'm only fooling myself. I have not worshiped at all. I have not truly worshiped God. The second thing we need to learn from this is, true worship gives me an accurate view of myself. And I need to have an accurate view of myself because I very easily can come to have an inflated view of myself. Uh, in order to overcome what someone else might say about me, I just build up those defenses and I come to have a, a wrong opinion of myself. And I need to worship so I get an accurate view of myself. Let's look at verse 5. Isaiah said, woe is me, I'm lost. In other words, oh no, I'm about to be killed by this holy God because I'm a man of unclean lips. He's saying, oh, now that I really see God, I see myself. And I have a whole lot of sin that I'm not sure how to take care of. Now, we have sin. We're born with a nature such that when we start to make moral decisions, we will choose to sin. And as we choose to sin, we progressively become one who sins by choice. Until confronted with our sin and until we come to a point of salvation. More about that later. Right now, I'll just leave Isaiah and all of us in that, in that little pickle here of being in sin, okay? We're going to get out of it, but let's, let's wade through a couple more things first. The third thing we need to learn is this. True worship gives me an accurate view of others around me. You see, I don't always have an accurate view of the people around me either because they give me 
a false front, they can pretend just like I can pretend that I have it all together and I have no need of God. And so others can pretend and sometimes I can allow them to fool me so I need an accurate view of others. Again in verse 5, Isaiah said, I'm in trouble, I'm a, I have unclean lips. And then he realized, everybody around me has unclean lips. Our conversation, our desires, our thoughts, all of those things together make every one of us a person who has unclean lips. Now, this is not what the Scripture is teaching here. The Scripture that that we should look at other people to compare ourselves against them, not what Isaiah was doing. He wasn't saying, well, those people have unclean lips and they're worse than I am, so God, I, I must be better than they are. Not what it's teaching at all. The Bible says if we compare ourselves with ourselves, we're just not wise. And that's one way of saying, that's just crazy. We don't compare ourselves with ourselves. So it's not saying that. Here's what it is saying. When I confront a holy God and I realize that I have sin, the last place I need to look for help with my sin is to any one of you. If I come to you and I say, hey, I I just realized how bad a sinner I am. Uh, I need some help here. And one of you says to me, oh, Dwayne, that's okay. I forgive your sin. I can go on my way thinking my sins were just forgiven, but I have been duped. I have been deceived if I believe that because you can't forgive my sin. I can't forgive your sin. So that's the realization here. We realize, oh, everyone else is in the same place I am. So, fourth thing we need to learn from this. True worship gives me an accurate view of salvation. You see, when I realize that I'm unclean and every person around me has unclean lips, then I realize all of us need salvation. Verse six, verses 6 and 7. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he'd taken with tongs from off the altar. The Old Testament picture of atonement for sin, of payment for sin, was that of an animal sacrifice on this altar where the fires burned very hot. And so from the reference that they had in the Old Testament that God's plan was until Jesus Christ came, Old Testament, Old Covenant, New Covenant, New Testament, Uh, The picture was that of the burning of the altar. And so the picture here was from that altar where sins were atoned for came a coal that purged his unclean lips and atoned for his sins, paid for his sins. New Testament picture is this, Jesus. He came to earth, lived a perfect life, completely sinless, He chose to die on the cross, to pay the price for our sins, to be the atonement for our sins. He raised to life again. The Bible says Father raised Him. The Bible says in another place He raised of His own power the unity of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. He came to life and He ascended to heaven where He is our high priest forever. No need of any human priest ever again, Scripture teaches us. Jesus Christ is our high priest. And now 
He offers us the opportunity if we repent. Repent means I've been running in my own life. I've not been the worshiper. I've, I've not acknowledged my sin. I've not acknowledged God's holiness. Uh, I'm doing a 180-degree turn. That's repentance. I turn away from my self-run life, and I turn to God. And he says, if we do that, then our sins are atoned for. They're paid for, and we receive him as our Lord and Savior. Here's what I would say about this. True worship will give you a picture of salvation that is exactly the same as what the Bible gives you. Listen closely. If you have a view that says, well, we're all taking different paths, but they all lead to heaven. They all lead to God. Here's what I would submit to you. You've never truly worshipped God. Because true worship will give you a biblical picture of what salvation is. If we're still self-describing what salvation can be for me and you and this person, that it's all different, we have our different truths, but they all work, then we've misunderstood God and His holiness and our sin and other people's sin and God's salvation. When we truly worship, we will describe salvation the same way God's Word does. And we're going to participate in a New Testament picture, a beautiful picture of salvation. We're going to take communion together. I'm going to ask our ushers to prepare for communion. And they'll serve us in just a moment. But stay with me. Jesus gave us this picture. During Passover with his followers, he transformed that Old Testament picture with the altar and the burning coals and the the death of the animals that was a substitutionary sacrifice for the sins of the people. He took that and transformed it. And he gave them a picture before it ever happened that he was about to go to the cross willingly, purposefully, and die for you and for me so we could have salvation, so he could atone for our sins. Would you just sit quietly for a few moments while we're being served? Reflect on your worship and on His salvation. Please hold the the cups, the bread and the juice, one on top of the other. Hold those. And in a moment, I'll lead us and we'll take of the bread and the juice together.
scripture says, and when the hour came, that is the hour when he was going to celebrate Passover with those disciples closest to him. He reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Never again would he do that until we're in heaven and we get to be with him at what the Bible calls the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he took a cup in the middle of the meal, one of the four cups. And he, when he had given thanks, he said, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And here's where then he transformed the meal from what it had always been in their minds and in their history to what it was to become. And he took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's give thanks similar to what Jesus did before we take the bread. Jesus, thank you that you willingly gave up your body to be the atonement, the payment for our sins that we could have salvation if we would repent and believe on you. We are deeply grateful. In fact, grateful, gratitude, thank you seem to be such inadequate words for all you've done for us. But our vocabulary escapes us to describe the depth of our gratitude for your sacrifice. So today, with humble worship and with grateful hearts, we take this bread that symbolizes your body. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you eat the bread with me? then it continues and likewise the cup the fourth cup of these four after the meal after they'd eaten and he said this cup that is poured out for you because his blood was about to be poured out is the new covenant in my blood something drastic is about to change in all that you've ever known of atoning for your sin." Will you join me as we thank him? Jesus, we thank you for your shed blood. Because we know without the shedding of blood, your word says there is no payment for sins. So we're grateful that we don't have to sacrifice day after day and year after year. But that you, once and for all, made the ultimate sacrifice, the supreme sacrifice that paid for the sins of all we repent and believe and turn to you. So we're grateful for that. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you drink the cup with me? Communion is worship, and it gives us a very clear picture of salvation. The fifth thing we need to learn before we're done today. True worship 
gives me an accurate view of my life purpose. Now, before you just dismiss that and say, oh, okay, I'm supposed to love Jesus, stay with me. Let's find out what happened to Isaiah, our life purpose. Because you see, God defines our life purpose. We do not get to define our life purpose. We can trust Him to define it. Verse 7 says, and he touched my mouth and he said, behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin atoned for. So Isaiah was a different person. He was no longer that person of unclean lips. His sins have been paid for. His guilt was taken away just like ours is when we come to Jesus and we confess him as our Lord and Savior. Give him our life. And then Isaiah, the same guy who just a short while before had been Undone, the Bible says. He had despaired even of his life. He was afraid this holy God was going to kill him because he was a sinful person. He believed the truth in worship that his sins could be taken away, that his sins could be paid for. And now, I think, he stands up free, delivered, and he says, when God says, whom shall I send and who will go for us? He said, Here I am, send me. This is the same guy who was groveling moments before. That's the freedom that comes in worship. When you worship God and he calls you to do something that you think is crazy, that you think you can't possibly do. I've had that happen so many times in my life. I, I have lost track, scared out of my wits. But I knew that I knew that I knew God was saying, here's where I'm taking you. Here's what I'm asking you to do. And before I began to realize more and more that when he says that, he's going to provide all the power, all the strength needed to follow through. And so I let him define my life purpose and my life calling and my life direction. I trust him and he takes me there. So, when we truly worship, we can be like Isaiah. We can say, here I am. I'm scared out of my wits, but send me. When we do that, we'll see God do some amazing things as a result of our worship. Will you bow your heads and pray with me, please? This is a very important time in the service. It's not time to prepare to leave. It's only a few minutes, but it's super important. There are two assignments we have, one of two assignments. Either it's time for you to receive prayer because the Holy Spirit has spoken to you about a need in your life, or it's time for the the rest of us to pray for those receiving prayer. And we stay right here with God, and we hear what God has to say. Now, you may have some illness that you just found out about, some disease, and you're terrified of it. You need someone to help bear that burden. Scripture teaches us as believers in Christ to bear each other's burdens. You may have a spiritual need in your life. You may have a struggle with something and you want someone to pray for you and with you. You may be facing a decision and you're just absolutely not sure what the right step would be and you need wisdom. You may have lost a job. You may have lost a loved one. Maybe during this sermon today, you realized, I'm not a worshiper. And you want to be 
born again, you want to have Jesus Christ just cover your sins and give you forgiveness and freedom and adopt you into his family forever. Our prayer partners would love nothing more than to help you with that. Maybe you're like Isaiah. He was a God follower. And maybe you're a God follower who when you worship and you see this holy God, you realize that God wants to crank up your worship quite a bit. The intensity, the volume, the passion of your worship. And you want to allow God to take you to the next place so that with enthusiasm and joy you can say, here I am, send me. I don't know what it is God's saying to you and what God wants to do, but you know. If God's been speaking to you already, you know it. And He's calling you to receive prayer for that. In a moment, I'm going to pray. After I pray, I'll ask everyone to stand. And then that's the time when I'll ask you to come and receive prayer. You don't have to come by yourself. Uh, There will be others coming with you. Our prayer partners will be walking along with you. Listen, when you come, that doesn't make you a member. We don't even ask about membership. We're here to pray and to minister and to help you and to bear your burden. That's all it is. Father, thank you that at this time we can just be still and hear from you. I pray that you'd help each one of us to obey you at this time. In Jesus' name, amen.